This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. When she was 11, Ellen Craft was given away as a present. She was born in 1826 in Clinton, Georgia. Her mother was a slave, and her father owned her mother. And Ellen inherited her father's looks and his light skin. People on the plantation would say that the little girl looked like a member of her owner's own family. And this ate at the man's wife, having this girl around her house, reminding her of her husband's tastes and cruel habits. And when her own daughter married a gentleman from Macon, the couple got the little girl as a wedding gift, and the mistress of the plantation got rid of her. Ellen moved to Macon, where she worked in the fields all day, and she met a man, another slave named William, and they fell in love and got married. In whispering in their bed at night, or when they passed in the fields or sat down for dinner, they plotted their escape. They knew that if they could get far enough out of Macon where no one knew them, Ellen could pass for white. But they also knew that wouldn't do it. A 22-year-old white woman traveling alone would have been weird. And a 22-year-old white woman traveling with a 20-something black man was out of the question. But one night in 1848, Ellen and William ran into the dark woods and kept running. And when they could be sure that they were far enough away from the plantation and the town and anyone who could recognize them, Ellen Craft became a white man. This was hard to do. It wasn't as simple as cutting her hair short and putting on men's clothes, which isn't simple anyway. Because imagine you're trying to travel a thousand some odd miles and even the most convincing drag, and your life literally depending on no one noticing that you're actually the other gender. And it's 1848. Beyond the hair and the clothes, Ellen Craft had to learn to walk and talk convincingly, like a young white man of means. And she didn't have any stubble, and she didn't have an Adam's apple, and she also couldn't read. So if she slash he and her slash his slave manservant ran into any trouble with the police or someone at a state border, she wouldn't be able to read a document. She wouldn't be able to sign anything. And they knew that the only chance they had of pulling this off and getting north was if they moved fast. And the only way that they could move fast was to take public transportation. By the time Ellen and William boarded their first train, they'd figured out how to do it. A young Southern gentleman had suffered a terrible accident. He needed to go to Philadelphia for special medical treatment. He needed his trusty slave William along to care for him. The lower part of his face was injured and bandaged, which covered up his Adam's apple and his beard. His leg had been conveniently injured too, so he walked funny, no big deal. And his arm was in a sling, and he was terribly sorry, but he could only move it enough to make an X anytime he was asked to sign their tickets or travel documents. And the crafts played their parts on trains, in a passenger ship, and finally on a ferry to Philadelphia. The abolitionists ate this story up. It had everything they were looking for to help spread an anti-slavery message. It had a cruel, vengeful slave owner, it had high drama, it had ingenious disguises, and it even had romance. Soon the abolitionist press had made the crafts the symbol of the struggle for freedom. And they more than took to the role, moving to Boston, the de facto capital of the anti-slavery movement, telling their story all over the Northeast, writing on the cause of liberty and basic human dignity and the barbarism of American slavery. And they became famous. And so their former owner knew exactly where to find them. Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. The law basically said that slaves were property, and lost property had to be returned even if that property was now in a state where slavery was illegal. 
Even if a person had been living in freedom and working and building a business and a family in that state for decades. And so when Ellen and William Kraft's former owners sent two agents to Boston to bring them back, the city of Boston had to let them. The slave hunters got official warrants and everything. But the people of Boston didn't have to let them. A group of abolitionists hid Ellen in another town. And William grabbed a gun and holed up in the house of another former slave, a guy named Lewis Hayden, who had gone from working as a man's property in Kentucky to owning a big house in Boston's schmancy Beacon Hill. And when the slave owners came looking for William, they were outnumbered and outgunned by free black men who didn't care about a warrant, and by Hayden, who stood in his doorstep with two kegs of gunpowder and a torch, and told the hunters he was ready to blow them and his house and himself up rather than let them take William Kraft. The slave hunters left town, and the Crafts did too. They moved to England, where they kept writing and lecturing and telling their story for nearly 20 years. Three years after the Civil War, a time when the safety of free black Americans was still threatened in much of the country, and of course would be for decades and decades longer, Ellen and William Kraft came back to the United States. And they did move back to Boston or Philadelphia, where many people would have welcomed them as conquering heroes. Ellen Kraft died in Ways Station, Georgia, in 1891, where she and her husband and their children had lived for 23 years growing rice and cotton and teaching in a school they founded. She was buried under a tree on the plantation that she owned.